half knowing, half learning. What does it mean to explore the space between? I'm Jason E.C. Wright, and this is Half Calf, where I catch up and converse with friends and creatives in the middle of transition. Today I catch up with Dave Hill as he shares how his plans for the future guide his moves in the present. So, Dave, what are you in the middle of? I'm in the middle of, uh, realistically today, I'm in the middle of deciding my pros and cons of my staff, how they uh, operate, my managers, making sure, putting them through my, um, I I say my little little test of chess, because everybody I put, everybody has a player, Mm -hmm. a piece in a chess board, and I play chess with them within the positions or the decisions that we're making. We're making a big transition with my company, you know, so with the company that I have. So actually really analyzing that because I can't do the work myself, but my role, I understand my role of actually getting them to think how everybody needs to think so that it flows. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So it's like, it's not so much like personality training as much as it is, okay, what's your skill set? What are you good at? And let me put you in a place that serves that skill set the best. Exactly. Without firing people <laughs> and hiring new people. <laughs> Yo, that's actually a very real thing because especially when you get to that point of um, whether it's first scalability or once you already started something, you have like a staff of people. It's making sure that you don't have to spend the time and money of retraining because I think a lot of people forget that training costs money like you're paying people while they're getting trained but you're paying the people that are training them and the resources that are required like it's a lot and that's even at the basis of level we're not not that much much money being made during that time period if any (laughs) if any so that's that's a big deal so like to, to backtrack a bit the companies that you have and the things that you do all came from some impetus of something what was your moment of clarity where it's like, you know what? I think that this is the path that I should be on. It's going to allow me to exact my ideas, help as many people, and diversify things in the way that I think that it makes sense. Like, what was that moment of clarity for you, and then what did that become as far as, like, what your business is now? That trigger, that trigger, I call it the, uh, I call it the ripple effect. Okay. My ripple, my first ripple effect, because we have many of them throughout our life. People don't recognize it, but we do. Um, my first ripple effect was, I believe I was 20 years old. Okay. Uh, no, I was 17. And after one of my parties, I met a gentleman named Darrell in Philadelphia. Okay. And on Balakinwood, I still remember the, the place right there on Balakinwood, across the street from TGI Fridays. That's a very clear <laughs> visual. <laughs> um, that was, uh, let me see, I'm 38. That was over 20 years ago. Okay. And... Um, I had a meeting with him because I had a substantial amount of money and I said, you know, I don't want to waste it. What to do? Then I started seeing him having checks just mailed into him because he was an advisor mm. to probably, he was an advisor to Colby Cole, Wendy Williams. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of people are Power 99. He was into the radio, like the execs, mm-hmm. a lot of business execs, a lot of people they came to him because he was a resource he was resource he was a resource and he was resourceful on using everybody to help everybody 
which is different from using everyone to help just yourself. Yes. So when I seen that, I said, wow, how can I be like that? So I started hanging around him more. The ripple effect of that was I started paying attention to others like him that I never knew was around me. Um, and then people that I started to look, I used to be on the block, but I'll be on my phone watching a Warren Buffett video. Because I know Warren Buffett has 77 companies, he manages all of them, and et cetera, et cetera. Right. Who would be on the block? <laughs> about to roll some dice <laughs> and you watching a video about Warren Buffett and, and you know in his early days right right you know so from that it evolved and that was my ripple of my first ripple effect of to where I am okay so then after I started my first company of doing promotions um, it started with the magazines then from okay. the magazines it just kept growing it kept growing and once everybody started asking me, yo, help me market this, help me do this, can I get into that? That started the marketing agency, the advertising agency. But we still had the map. Okay. Then I seen a void in places. And anywhere there's a void or a need, it becomes successful. Mm-hmm. Period. And I'm a true believer of that. Um, I actually, I learned that from, again, looking and watching the produce, you know, the and people ahead of me. Yeah. Um, so I see there was a void. There was no um, R&B magazine. So in uh, 2005, like I'm really Google, going back in my yeah, mind. Like there isn't. Vibe was culture. Right. It wasn't all R&B. So basically, you had magazines that would cover it, but they weren't all about it. Like, Essence would cover it, Ebony would cover it, like... Yeah, they yeah. would cover a little bits and pieces of it. Right, right, But right. it wasn't all R&B music. Hmm. But we had a hip-hop magazine like Source, right. like XXL, like True Magazine, yeah, yeah, yeah. the one I owned. But there was no for R&B. Okay. One night, so one night from a regular conversation, I, I said, shit, well, I want the go, go daddy. Googled it and said, rmbmagazine.com is available. Literally just R&B Magazine. Yeah. That's hysterical that nobody had done that. So I said, I got to buy it now. But that's a good point because many people will think themselves out of, oh, well, it's probably already been done, so I'm not going to do it. The beauty that comes with not even so much the boldness, but just listening to your own curiosity, like, I wonder if this is available, like just to go look. But to even go back a little bit, your expansion as you're as we're going in this this part of the story, like your expansion was always needs-based. It was like, oh, we got to this point and somebody needs this. Why not find a way to monetize that thing? Like, oh, I'm doing, you know, mm-hmm. a magazine, someone needs help marketing. Okay, oh, well, I'm pretty good at this. I have enough case studies. Let's do that. But a lot of times we don't think of our friends or the things that we do as a case study. We think of it as we're just trying to help someone. That's but so there's funny. a way to quantify that. That's so funny you say that. I was listening, just listening to Ray Dalio, uh-huh. and he's another ripple effect down the line. But I was listening to Ray Dalio, and uh, Ray Dalio said, everybody is a case study. Yeah. Everybody. Everybody that comes into your life is a case study. Everything that you do in your life is a case study. Everything that speaking, you just brought me this. It's the first time I ever had this. Hmm. The first time I ever been here. It's a case study of my experience here. When I leave, if I'm down the street or if I'm around, I just want to make sure that the, the sharpening of uh, 
It's almost like a, a, a corp- appropriate. Uh, I'm talking weird. It's an appropriate sound effect for the conversation we're having anyway, because <laughs> it's sharpening things and it's fantastic. Also, I'm not editing this out. This is great. Yeah, great. Um, but as you were saying, um, having everything that you encounter as a case study, it's, it's a much more quantifiable way of the quote that everything that comes to you is good. It's either a blessing or a lesson. But if you take it out of the, you know, the binary of it, like it has to be good or bad, it's like, no, it's a case study. What happened? What can you extract from it? What is the thing? Okay, cool. Now that you know that, then how do you apply that to something else? What do you, what else do you do? That's right. A lesson is your results of what to do and what not to do. Yeah. So when you have that lesson, that's your case study. Mm -hmm. This is what I, you know, so, and and it's so funny as you said it, but yeah, everything is a case study. Everything. That's really like that's that's a really fantastic point. So, you have the you go from the magazine to the marketing agency, yep. and then the marketing agency yields what? Where, where, what's the next step? From the, the next step from the marketing agency, we have looked for uh, it's ever evolving. Mm-hmm. The advertising it, it's ever evolving. So the marketing agency is where you are now, and it just kind of like has expanded from that. No, I have expanded from that. Okay, I fired myself. So, Not the Steve Jobs get fired from your own company, yeah. but like I'm gonna. I fired myself. I've learned, and one thing that my my advisors had showed me was, so you can't do it forever, and you can't do it by yourself. Please you say that again. You can't do it forever, and you can't do it by yourself. So once you have somebody or have people that's around you that is skillful right. enough, that's a two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year job. I'm a million dollar a year job. Why am I going to do something that's 250 and I can make a million? So, in, in the context of that's a $10 hour job to somebody that makes $40 an hour. Right. A 10-person, I'd rather pay somebody $10 out of my 40 to do that while I still have that going over there while I'm making the rest of the $30. So, once I learned that, I started to fire myself. So, I put manuals in place. I've written down my case studies. Right, right. My methods. And then now when I hire a position or when I create something new, I have a manual for it. So guess what? I can give you the manual. I can show you one or two times. We can talk about it. We have our meetings about it. But you have a manual of what works. And that's basically documenting the best, worst, all outcomes of all the case studies you have, like out of all these things, here were the things that were consistent, here were the constants, here's what you need to know in order to successfully do X, Y, Z, whatever this particular yeah. thing is. So it's basically giving someone basically the paper version of you. Yeah. Like, here you go, follow this, here's here's what it is. Not so much a blueprint as much as it is a guidebook. Like, you're gonna hit here, you're gonna do here, you're yeah. gonna turn here, and then that's it. And it's even a bad thing, too, because I, I have a separate log of all the bad things. Hmm. The reason why I have a log of the bad things is because I've learned I need to analyze my bad thoughts right. or my bad decisions or choices in business. Recently, um, from going back to that, I looked at December this in January of right. all my hobby thing that I did bad. I didn't. I don't never write it down and then go back to it the next day because I don't give it no time to breathe. So I went back to some of the decisions that. I felt as though, you know, I could have did better in December. And I seen that out of the three that was there, 
two of those was made out of emotion instead of business. So that is a very real point. In any time that you're in between, like, okay, I'm looking to refine the business or I'm reviewing my best practices or whatever yeah. the case may be, a lot of us would like to think that when we're in business mode, we're thinking business-wise, but if you're driven by something that's going to feed your ego later, or you're not taking this meeting because you don't like the way this person talked to you on email, or you don't like the way this person made <coughs> you feel in a meeting or wherever the case may be, even if it is based on intuition or good instinct, there's still an emotional quotient yeah. that factors into that decision-making process. And I think a lot of us, especially anyone that grew up in a corporate town, like a place that has a very corporate mentality, mm -hmm you're taught to suppress your emotions and be like Spock, right? Like, be a Vulcan, be totally, you know, logistically minded, be logical, make sure that this is right, don't feel a way about it. But emotion is important for everything to drive you, but also it's important to be wary of. And if you don't have that checks and balance system in place to make sure that you are looking at where the emotion came in and feeling, okay, how can I avoid that or balance that out or how can I calibrate it so that that doesn't adversely affect the outcome of things if you're not reviewing the whole picture you're not reviewing the whole picture so yeah. all of your results are going to be tainted like your variable isn't your true variable mm -hmm. it's like a variable with a hidden number underneath it that's not you can't have a, an actual accurate equation yeah. out of that you're absolutely right and that's 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 a that's a great point also the point about letting it breathe have to let stuff gestate yeah. and sleep on it because the perspective is what shows you whether it was big or small. I just found out that one of those was uh, an emotional choice that I did based off of helping, but helping the wrong situation. It involved $25,000 and helping a situation with $25,000 instead of putting the $25,000 where it should have went. So it's more of, I want to help to say that I helped as opposed to putting it somewhere that actually would be producing the help. Almost like treating symptoms instead of finding the cure. Man, it's really just like band-aids. Yeah. Oh shit, you need to make this happen? All right, come on, come on. All right, we'll make it happen. All right, there. Look. But there's no investment in changing the behaviors that cause that situation to start. Exactly. So, but I had, I just learned that maybe a couple days ago of that decision. Mm. So now, the, what I do is, how do I not do that again? What was the lesson that I learned? There? How can I? So I now had to put, what process can I put in place before I make certain decisions? Yeah. When somebody comes to me with something fast, I'll automatically say no. Mm. Now, is it them coming to you fast or them pressuring you to be like, hey, I got this thing, like, I need to know by tomorrow night or whatever the case If is. somebody says, and it depends on who it comes from. Okay. If somebody says, yo, I need this done, we got to do this right now, blah, 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 blah. Yo, look, I need it done in an hour. I need I, I need $10,000 tomorrow. I need, I need it by Friday. I, nah, I can't do it. But if you come to me with, yo, this is a plan that I have to do something. Here we go. You know, I would like to move on it real fast, but you know, you let me know what your thoughts are. Now, I'm in a different position mentally and with my company because I 
put myself in a position where I don't have to do the work. You know, I don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I have a, a record label that this guy wants me to build for him. That when he wants to be like Rock Nation, mm-hmm. or he is going to be, not wants to, he is. He has all the pieces. He has all the pieces, he has all the finances, everything like that. Do I want to do it? Why do I need to do it? Even though it came from somebody else saying, yo, let's work with this guy. Let's do this. Let's do that. Do I have to? It's like your personal fulfillment or tie into it. Like, why do I need to be a part of this? Like, yeah, this is a great thing to happen, but why do I need to be a part of this? Is this something that you think about when you take these decisions? Is it more of a, does this meet a personal need that I want? Does this meet a professional tick box like I want to make sure that I have one of these things in my portfolio or is it something greater is it your question being does this make me excited or happy or do I feel that this needs to exist or am I going to learn something from it like what is your criteria for what makes something a need where you feel that you need if it fits in my eight lanes okay January 1st I started eight lanes okay last year I had two January 2017 only had two lanes. Okay. One lane was to make sure that our company makes over $250,000. Okay. The second lane, the second lane in last year was to fire myself from one or more of my companies. So, those are my two lanes. So, I worked backwards. Now I have eight lanes. So, I figured out what my goal is. And how all each one of those eight lanes is going to get me to that goal, hypothetically speaking. Um, if I said I wanted to make a million dollars, I have eight lanes to do it. Easy math, five lanes. Each lane has to make me two hundred thousand. Right. I have twelve months to make me two hundred thousand. That right there is fifty thousand a quarter. What do I have to do within that quarter in that lane? to make me 50000 in order to hit my mark. So I'm breaking it all the way down for that lane. Now, when I have guys come to me to help do work or come on as a project or work together, I take it, I, I, I take all the information they give me, I sit back and I look at which lane it fits in. If it doesn't fit with inside a lane or compensate some of that lane, that might be one of the single greatest determining factors between a successful per- a successful plan and a successful person. You can have the best plan in the world, but if you personally don't have the wherewithal and the discernment to look at, okay, here's my plan, but every opportunity is not a good opportunity. Then the plan could possibly fall to the wayside. Even if it's a good plan, it could not run well. It's like you can have a good car that has a great engine, but if you put water in the engine, it's, it's not designed to run on that. It, you have three lanes of, of, of gasoline and then ethanol. Yeah. Here's here, here's what you got. But similarly, if you have a person that is incredibly you know dynamic and driven and stuff like that, but doesn't have a good plan. There is nothing to support that person's vision, mm-hmm. especially if that person doesn't have internal discernment. The plan is there to help amplify the mm-hmm. discernment. Exactly. That has to happen. 
and it makes it so much simpler instead of being like, oh, this opportunity is going to get me taken care of. I think you and I had the conversation um, before when we were talking about the difference between making a decision mm-hmm. based on where it fits into your overall plan, which brings the importance of having an overall plan, yeah. versus making a decision based on where you are right now, like, I got this project that I want to fund, or I need to pay rent next month, or I'm trying to, you know, get this new car, this new house, or mm-hmm. whatever the case may be. It's like knowing what you're working towards is the ultimate thing. Does it fit into this? Yes or no? It's literally having what are you going to create? What is your menu? Like, what are you making? Like, mm-hmm. Thanksgiving dinner, what are you making? Once you know what you're making, you know what the process is yeah. to make the thing. So from there, you have a shopping list. If you're going to the store to get it, if it doesn't fit into what you're making, you don't need to buy it right now. Yeah. That's why people go to Target and end up going for milk and leaving with an ottoman. <laughs> I'm one of those people. <laughs> I go into Walmart. But, like, and but, I, yeah. but that's what happens when you go in without a plan. Like, here's what we're here to do. Here's what we're here for. There's a time and place to let go of the plan. But when you have it, it simplifies everything by being very specific so that you know the boundaries within where you can play in. And if it fits in, you won't have to force it. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I think it's, it's, it's really hard to illustrate in theory if you haven't put it into practice. Yeah. And that's part of the reason why I think that the more conversations that I have, the clearer it becomes, even for me personally, let alone anybody that I can help, but like recording things, like being yeah. able to uh, write things down, whether it's documenting it into a manual, whether it's doing um, a podcast or a uh, live video or whatever the case may be, like actually recording when you have these epiphanies right when they happen, that helps with the development process because it shows you if you know what you're doing. Just like conversations like this, the more you have to articulate it, it shows you if you know it well. Because there's that Einstein quote of, um, if you can't explain it simply, you don't know it well enough. Yeah. And that's that's super real. Wow, that's super deep. Real. That's deep. And, it's, and it's, it's fantastic because if you have a clear vision of what the thing is, you can describe it 17 different ways. You'll just change your words based on who your audience is. Right? You'll change it to make sure that you're using the right vocal cues or vernacular or reference points to make sure this person gets it. And in this conversation, you've given me so many different references of what you're doing. Like, what you're doing on paper, it's probably a two-sheet. Yeah. Like, in, in general. It's probably a two-sheet. It's a drawing. One and a half. Like it's one a drawing, and a half. Yeah, like, It's a drawing. <laughs> yeah. But how you do it, oh, my God, it's a tap. Like, it's a tapestry. But that becomes the job. How to do it becomes the job. That becomes your daily. Yeah. Because you're always going to have somebody or a client or a vendor that may stray you off of your plan. Because that happens. You're human. Yeah. And there's that whole, you want to help. And you have to find a way to keep, not not keep it in check, but to make sure that it's wisely applied. Exactly. Like one of the deals that I'm working on that I decided to move forward with, I'm doing it for two reasons. Number one, I figured out a way how to talk myself into it. It fits into one lane. Right. <laughs> and uh, also, I'm helping a friend out because their actions is, I want them to change from working in scarcity. Mm. When you said, I got to pay rent. 
the only reason why, like, they can't pay the rent if they don't make this deal without asking somebody to borrow something. Yeah. So now they're just doing things just out of scarcity when it's not what they really do. Yeah. And, you know what I'm saying? So I'm, tr- I'm trying to change that, especially with the people that's around me. You know? But even with my lanes, going back to my lanes, um, it's so funny. I have it down to the most simplest form to... I know my marketing company, in order to reach my goal with all my land, my marketing company is required to make sure we have 72 invoices. My, 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 the bad company that I'm working with, Thrash, to, to make its lane, we need 386 cells. Like each lane, I know to the, to the point. It's like landmarks. Like yeah. as you're driving along, it's like I know I'm on the right track when I see this thing, or you know what, I should be seeing this at this mile marker, and then I know how much further I need to go to my exit. Exactly. Yeah. And so then I, the job is having meetings and having sit downs with who's running each lane, mm-hmm. and getting them to be like minded. How do, how can we how can we get 72 invoices in by June? Yeah. Not saying to them that that's your whole goal. But how can we make this shorter instead of it being a whole year? What do we have to do? Okay, we need to talk to 720 people. Do we need to talk to 104, I mean 144 people? Like, what do we need to do? So those are the conversations. Yeah. Setting us up to be able to accomplish those goals easily. Because it sounds stupid, 72 contracts, 72 invoices, that's 72 artists, that's 72 companies, record labels, that's 72 uh, uh, clothing brands that want to advertise on market. You, you know, it sounds really, really small. So when you look at the big picture of, damn, this is my goal to make a million dollars. But when you break it down to uh, five lanes, each lane got to make 200000 and that's 50000 a quarter. Mm-hmm. All right. Every contract is $2,000. I need 25 contracts within this quarter to make my mark. But that's just you quantifying it all and making it. Okay, cool. Here's how you make it real. It's like, yeah. we want to get to the top of the mountain. What are the steps? Yeah. What are the size of the steps? How wide are they? How far apart are the intervals? And how tall are they? Like, it really puts it in perspective. Yeah. And that becomes your job as a CEO. That becomes your job as a leader. I think every leader thinks this way or in some shape, form, or fashion. They may not speak it. They may not explain it. They may not, but they really think that way. And I'm finding out the Ray Dalios, Tony Robbins, the, the, um, the Bill Gates, the Warren Buffetts. You know, um, there's a gentleman... I think when we was talking, I was saying, yo, I need to change my circle. Mm-hmm. Because I look back and I seen that, you know, I'm, I'm at the top of my totem pole. Yeah. No disrespect to my friends, my, my circle. So funny. Um, this week, I changed that. Mm. And I think I reached the Mecca. And I'm like, I'm trying to figure out who's above this guy. Because right. now he is my bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, his name is Eddie Fam. Eddie Fam. Eddie Fam, he's one of the top 10 consumer product, you know, salespeople in the world. They re- the industry retired him at 26. What do you mean the industry retired him at 26? They asked him to stop for a certain amount of years. <laughs> and they gave him a big lottery check. To well, imagine it. how good you have to be at what you do. It's for someone to be like, yo, I need you to just like... 
because they weren't. I guess he would. He wouldn't renew the contract. I guess he wouldn't continue with that company or whatever. But they felt so strong <laughs> that if he went somewhere else or if he did his own thing, we would go bankrupt. And they gave him a lottery check. When I say a lottery check, I mean a lottery check. That's what I get. I get it. Which is also interesting. I've had this conversation recently. Where did the million dollar target come from? Like, you know, people will always arbitrate. Like, I need a million. I need a million. Why is it a million? Why is it at 750,000? Why is they don't it at 1.7? Like, that's it. But I will say that I would attribute it. And this is my personal thought. Yeah. Marketing of the lottery. Win a million dollars. Go do this. Go do that. Go do that. And people are like, and, and people just got into the thing. Like since the seventies, like I need to win the lottery. I need that million dollars to do X, Y, Z. And then it just became a million dollars, and it got permeated to everything else. So it's like, but why was million the thing? Because I was the the furthest that you could think of, or that's the highest you were like. Why aren't people rapping about you know? I'd like to be you know a trillionaire, like a real life. Like how do you map out to a trillion? But like you said, it's because. Most people don't know either what they need or how they want to get to where they think they want to go. But if you really map out what you need, you might find out that you only need three hundred seventy-five thousand and you know thirty-seven cents. You know what I mean? But then also it may turn out like you need the budget to basically finance a brand new country. Depends on the level of your ambition and what you figure out. Like I, you figure out. I even broke that down. I need, and I'm going to have fifteen million. Three seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That gets me. That gets me two hundred and forty thousand dollars a year mm-hmm. for, for the next sixty-five years. I'm not going to live past another sixty-five years. I'm thirty-eight years old right now. That's a hundred and something years. Old. If I do, God bless me. Yeah. But if you, if you do, it's because you invested in the right uh, <laughs> lifeline. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> My lifeline. Word. It's like I ain't that one yet. Hey, yeah. Word. Like we just added a new. This ain't even land. It's like ways. This yeah. is like. A, <laughs> It's exactly. an And then also I figured out, okay, now if I'm living like that, I want my kids to live. Right. So how can I do that? So my next generation, I figured, break everything down into 10 years. So if I give my kids 240000 a year mm-hmm. for 10 years, that's 2.4. So now my goal has changed. Mm. Now I need 10 of those. Because right. 10 times 10 is 100. Yep. Then I have a 100 years legacy. And that is the same point that I came to, which is awesome because I, you're the first person I've met outside of the first three people I had this conversation with. So, Ouija Theodore, theater of the Brooklyn Circus, um, the clothing line, not mm-hmm. the actual Brooklyn Circus, because otherwise he'd be really old. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, Ouija introduced this concept into my sphere of the 100-year plan. And I remember the first time I came across it, I was doing research on uh, my guy Sam and Shaka from Art Comes First prior to actually meeting them, and was just really, really in tune with the intention and the ambition of what they were doing, right? And going to what Ouija was doing, and he just posted like 100-year plan, this and the other, but at the time I couldn't find anything about, okay, what is the 100 year plan like how do you what like who plans for 100 years like i'm trying to make it the next 100 days like and that was also back when i was yeah. operating also from a place of scarcity like not acknowledging that <laughs> it's not not that i didn't feel i was worthy but not having the wherewithal 
to be aware of the abundance around mm -hmm. me because I had not decided what I was going to do. I was just going, using my talent to get by as opposed to having this thing that I decided to do and figure out how to get there. And I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine. It's like, how do you even plan for 100 years? And he's like, man, I don't even know. Like, I just, I mean, I guess go, you know, think about what are your big goals and go a year at a time. I was like, no, oh my God. 100 years is 10 decades. That's 10 10-year plans. So that makes it by size. But also, think about where you are in your life. You've already had at least one, maybe two decades under your belt at this mm -hmm. point. What have you already been doing by accident that kind of alter your trajectory to what you can do on purpose? And how can you start doing that intentionally now? And then it was, oh, shit. A hundred year plan means that I'm planning for my own obsolescence. I'm planning to be obsolete because I'm not, it's going to outlive me. Yeah. So now, what am I creating that will live beyond me, that deserves to live beyond me, and that contributes beyond me? Which means that by the time I get halfway through my plan, I need to start training people like apprenticeships, like 20 year apprenticeships. And it needs to be in good hands by the time I'm ready to walk away from it. And then I can still loosely govern it the last one and a half to two segments of the plan that's being done. Mm -hmm. That blew my mind. And it was a wonderful epiphany for me because it was a result of my own just swimming in my own thoughts and thinking. Mm -hmm. Which is always much more rewarding for me than just taking what someone else has learned at face value. Like, that stuff's cool and that's how research works. Great. But... To be able to actually come up with your own conclusions from your own hypothesis, that's a really fulfilling feeling. Yeah, it is. It really is. So, like, to hear the way that you've applied it without even that being the impetus for that concept, it's like, okay, cool. Maybe I'm on the right track. Maybe I'm not. Maybe this is confirmation, or maybe it's just showing that I'm not the only person that thinks in this particular way. How do you push that forward? And I think it's really having the conversations, talking yeah. it through refining it down, consensually revisiting it, and helping as many people as you can in the way that helps them help themselves as opposed to just helping them with the situation they're in. I had to get out of my out of out of my own way. Yeah. If you want to say from what you said. I had to get out of my own way. Because that's very real. Yeah. Very, very real. I had to get out of my own way with it to, to come up with that. And then I also was thinking, God damn. 240,000 may not be enough. But then I said, you know what? It is. Because 240,000 sitting for 10 for 10 years. 2.4 mil sitting for 10 years. That's a lot. Gaining interest. That's a lot of interest. That's a lot of interest. Then they'll have enough. And then now the next two 2.4 sitting for 20. And then you're also teaching them the habit. So it's not just generational wealth, it's just generational intellect. Yes. And that right there is the game. And it's so funny because I told Eddie, um, Eddie, Eddie, Fung, Eddie Van, um, George Foreman called him the son of George Foreman. Mm -hmm. George, $507 million. Um, the mop blowing my blow. Yeah. That's, that's his whole idea. This dude was selling 200,000 uh, Snuggies in a month. <clears throat> like, you don't even understand. That's why. This guy's amazing. Um, and. I told him, I said, you want to know something? I written down one of my achievements is to talk to Warren Buffett, is to talk to Ray Dalio. Have conversations like how we're doing right now. But the real conversation, I told him the real reason why I wanted it is I don't want to ask them to invest in me. 
I don't want to ask them or anything. What I want is I want their thought process. Mm-hmm. And I said, I want to find the people like you, Eddie. Nobody don't, like, like you're not out there like that. But in the circles, you are. It's like, like, like everybody, you know. Yeah, everybody sees George Foreman. But the machine was your idea in your mind. I like to know your thought process. Warren Buffett is the face. Warren Buffett made he's the oracle. They call him the oracle of of stocks, etc., etc., etc. But guess what? He has a team. He has a machine. What are the thought process that they do to come up with these ideas, these thoughts, and these methods, and the choices that why go into that? What makes you look at this stock for the next ten years? What strategies? What? How do you think? And I told my kids. And I tell everybody around me, if you figure out how somebody thinks, I could take every single thing away from you right now. And in a period of time, you will be right back to the point you are right now. Because you know the process. You could take away the car, you could take away the mag, you could take away the advertising, you could take away the leather company, you could take away all that. You could take away the house, all that. I could be on the street sleep. If I go to another city without having this, because I know the thought process of my advisors, of my Durrells, of my circles, I will be back in that same position I'm in maybe a year, depending on how fast I implement certain thought processes. So you'll never be broke. You'll never have, you never want for nothing. And that is my want for nothing. Your want for nothing could be money, but when you get to a certain point, your want for nothing is actually knowledge, and you keep gaining that. So I'm on a, a search, a high, for thought process of great people. You know. Thanks to Dave Hill and DMH Empire for today's episode. This podcast is presented weekly by the Vanishing Gallery. Until next time, keep exploring the middle and what lies within.